Thank you very much. Uh, Senator Smith. Uh, thank you very much, Chair Schatz, and thanks to all of you, and uh, Vice Chair Murkowski, thanks very much to all of you for being here. Um, Mr. Spahn, I think that your testimony sort of touched on everything that I'm hoping we can accomplish in the Native Farm Bill, so I really appreciate that. And um, let, me just, um, let me just dive in a little bit on this question of self-governance, and Ms. Vane, I'm going to come back to you too. So I think that the history of uh, self-governance and self-determination has really proven that tribes are the best um, stewards of federal resources. And so what we did in the last Farm Bill was to include the first ever self-governance programs at USDA. I want to thank Senator Hoven and others. A lot of us worked on that in the pilot project for um, FDIPR. Um, but now the question is, how do we build on this and how do we take it to the next level? So could you, each of you, just talk uh, briefly about why the um, self-governance for SNAP and FDIPR you know, what it would mean for tribes and tribal citizens as we, as we work to move this forward. Please, Ms. Fain, go forth. Go forth. Sure. Um, both of those opportunities, the, I, I think the benefits are twofold. Uh, with regard to FDIPR, uh, you're, you're providing opportunities for uh, fresher, higher quality food products. Right. Uh, to the, to the community members, you're also supporting opportunities in, for a, a new market for tribal producers mm -hmm. who don't have that to rely upon, but when the tribes are able to make those determinations uh, for the good of their community, they can either rely on their own uh, ag operations or work directly with tribal producers who have otherwise been um, unable to participate in, in that type of program. And then within SNAP, um, it is an opportunity for uh, to administer a program at the local level mm -hmm. and to achieve a greater efficiency and a greater impact because the administration of the program is happening on the ground by the government most familiar with the people that that program is supposed to be serving. Thank you, thanks very much. Um, would, would you like, I want to just pull you into this and, and, and get your take on this, and maybe you could also talk about why having a dedicated office of self-governance would be helpful to an agency that, um, by its own admission, doesn't have a ton of experience working with 638 authority and other kinds of self-governance. Uh, yeah, yes, thank you for that question. And I agree with everything um, that the prior witness mentioned as far as the benefits. You know, we're also seeing that it's inv invoking a sense of pride in the mm -hmm. customers of the food distribution programs, that they're very proud to go in and mm -hmm. see Oneida beef, Oneida buffalo uh, in their food di distribution program. In fact, at Oneida Nation, they found uh, that one of the approved food list was uh, catfish, and they had um, swapped it out for local whitefish. However, uh, because the beef and the buffalo were coming directly from Oneida, that was just going off the shelves like crazy. Mm -hmm. And they actually had to change out and implement and bring in more beef and more buffalo and substitute it for the fish because people were so proud to see that it was locally grown and locally produced. Uh, so I think that there's a lot of benefits to these programs. I think that the Office of um, Self-Governance, the benefit is that, you know, we have heard the USDA express concern about um, having the capacity or the knowledge of right. to be able to negotiate with tribes. Mm -hmm. We think that an Office of Self-Governance or even a single point of contact could really help to um, educate all the different programs. You know, USDA is a huge, massive organization and lots of different departments. 
So having somebody that has that knowledge about what is self-governance, what is self-determination, and helping guide the rest of the agency and the rest of the programs through, we feel like that'd be very beneficial. Uh, it would also help um, building that internal capacity. And once that office, once more authorities are provided, then that office could start handling being the primary point of contact for negotiations mm -hmm. with tribes across all USDA. Mm -hmm. uh, they're sitting in. There's similar approaches at IHS where they have um, agency lead negotiators that will sit in and they focus just on negotiations process. So I see something similar for USDA as a benefit. Thank you. Um, Mr. Chair, if I could just ask, I'm going to just take a little bit more time. Um, I really appreciate that, and I think that you know, the USDA has relied on other federal agencies um, when it comes to doing this kind of contracting, and it seems to me high time that they develop their own expertise and their own capacity to do this, which the Office of Self-Governance could accomplish. Um, last thing I just want to touch on is that I mean, in my conversations with the Native Farm Bill Coalition and others, and the, it, it has become clear to me that um, we need to look through all of the titles of the Farm Bill to look for places where we can ensure that issues of equity for tribal producers and, and um, agriculture are, are addressed. And even um, uh, the, the USDA continues to, on a journey, I will say, they continue on a journey of addressing equity in all of its work, something that I know Secretary Vilsack and um, Deputy Secretary Torres Small are committed to. So let me just ask as a follow-up, do you think it is important that we look through all of the titles of the Farm Bill to make sure that we are looking for those issues of equity where we can address them? Absolutely. I completely agree with that. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you very much, and thank you for your leadership on both committees, uh, Senator Smith. Senator Mullen, uh, likewise. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Mr. Kenzie, uh, Ms. Skokie Creek Nation obviously is very lucky uh, to, have, um, to have the ability to have a, a dedicated USDA inspector in your meat processing plant, and uh, very fortunate to be able to get that. Uh, however, uh, other tribes and other businesses have to rely on a travel, traveling inspector, uh, which means they're very limited on when they can process uh, the, uh, the proteins. How does that affect the bottom line for these other tribes and businesses out there? Sure, uh, and, and actually the uh, FSIS inspector that we have on site now um, was formerly a traveling inspector, and so he talks a lot about the fact that he's glad to be in one place. It's frustrating for the USDA um, as they try to fill those gaps. Um, it's hard to project for the businesses, so I can, because I have an inspector on site every day if we need them, um, I, can, I can set our schedule, whether that's bringing in new producers or our own livestock from the ranch. Um, I'm a little more easily able to forecast that need out. It helps with staffing because, you know, I'm, I'm not going to have a bunch of guys standing around all day because someone couldn't show up or because another plant needed the inspector. Um, having that dedicated um, inspector on site every day, it goes a long way. And, you know, I have a great staff. It it, uh, you know, I have no complaints about the staff, but it also helps just having that extra set of eyes and that accountability on the, on the cleaning staff, on the, on the staff as they go about their day. Um, having that dedicated staff on site every day um, goes a long way in ensuring cleanliness and, and wholesomeness and safety of the product. Um, but from the business standpoint, like I said, it just keeps log jams from happening. It keeps me from having to turn away customers because I'm not sure um, when or what day I'm going to be able to, to um, carry out slaughter and, and, um, and, processing um, because you have to have a USDA inspector on site for both of those activities. So you can run custom, you can run custom exempt, um, but then the, the customer that brings that livestock in is limited with what they can do with that animal. So um, it, it limits their, their marketability as well. So you have, you have one dedicated inspector, right? Yes, sir. So what happens if uh, a, an emergency takes place and he can't be there that day? 
So the responsibility then would fall to the USDA to get a substitute, um, which has only happened one time, and thankfully we were able to pull from another plant that uh, that, that was not doing any, any slaughter that day. But it, it does create issues. Um, like I said, it, we've only been open a year and a half, um, and it's only happened once, but it, it, it can create issues. At that point, the frontline supervisor has to call um, all the plants kind of within the region. You know, Eastern Oklahoma, as you well know, Senator, is, is fortunate. We have several. Uh, we have four tribally owned and several other locally owned uh, meat processing facilities. A couple are USDA inspected as well. So we sort of have a pool um, that, that makes us a little bit unique in terms of Indian country meat processing facilities. But, um, you know, I don't, I don't want the, the record to show that as, as the norm because it's not. Uh, tribes throughout Indian country are in remote areas difficulty getting uh, processors. I'm, you know, an hour away from the next nearest plant and some maybe three or four or more hours away from the nearest inspected plant. So that creates even more issues, not in eastern Oklahoma. So do you feel like if we would have 638 uh, and tribes were allowed to do their own inspections, um, would it uh, be able to increase liability and production in the areas to which they serve? I believe so, and, I, and just as a general stance, I, I'm always in favor of self-governance and, and using 638 compacting when appropriate. I know there uh, there may be some some issues in terms of you know just kinks that need worked out in the negotiations with uh, with tribes and staff. And again, all tribes are unique, and that's why um, these compacts are important because it allows tribes to negotiate directly with the agency to to come up with a solution that works best for them. Um, if we were looking at marketability and things, as long as there's parity there with the federal inspector and the tribal inspector so that um, there's no limitations on what a tribe can do on their, with their product inspected by the tribal inspector, um, that would be fantastic. I know uh, the CFR in Section 9 already talks about um, voluntary inspection which is for, and export. So um, whether that is um, non-immutable species such as bison, what voluntary means is the USDA will inspect it, but, it, but you're, you're charged a fee. You have to reimburse them for that cost. And so it's not like beef and pork, which is taxpayer-funded. The facility is responsible for um, non-immutable species, bison or venison or other, or other, other products, buffalo. Um, and the same would be true for the export certification. So you can be a non-USDA-inspected facility and uh, meet export criteria. Uh, you just have to do that on a voluntary basis currently. So as long as there were no limitations put on the tribes, if they, if they do choose um, to go the 638 route, um, I would be in full support. Thank you. Ma'am, uh, quickly, we've heard uh, concerns from USDA that implementing 638 authority for meat inspections would be difficult and impractical uh, at the agency. What's your thoughts on that? My thought is that uh, where there is opportunity to uh, improve uh, the agency's government-to-government relationship, then that needs to happen. And even if that takes time and space for people to get comfortable with tribes in that space, uh, at least from IAC's view, it is always our position that it we are to support tribal sovereignty, and 638 is a component of, of that, including with the the FSIS services. And in your experience, though, tribes have been able to 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 do the job uh, with HHS and BIA, correct? Absolutely, tribes have undertaken very complex systems in life and death situations, especially where when it comes to. Uh, when it comes to IHS in particular. And I think that's something that uh, we always encourage um, agencies to understand that, you know, there, there are other models, while they may not be identical to what it looks like to, uh, for a transition with regard to meat, that 
there were there was a process in place for tribes to build out the program and make sure that there is not a gap in services or um, some other risk that might justify not going down that route. And so um, generally, I always like to share the, the really complex systems that tribes have taken over. And again, I'm fortunate to get to work throughout Indian country, but having grown up in Oklahoma, have been able to see that firsthand, especially through my own tribe and the services that they provide. It's a great panel when everybody <laughs> there has Oklahoma ties, ma'am. <laughs> Can't get something better than that. Thank you. Senator Millen, I really appreciate what you have kind of worked out here in the sense that, look, every agency that has had to take that first step, whether it was within Interior, um, uh, BIA, uh, we've got some examples in Alaska between Park Service, where Park Service is not working as well as Forest Service when it comes to, to the 638 compacting. And it's a little bit of a learning curve, and I think with some of the agencies, it really is a matter of bringing them along. This is not that scary. It can be done, and it can be done in a way that meets the needs um, of all involved. And I, I really appreciate the conversation that you had with Mr. Kissy. Um, about what happens if you don't have that, um, that individual that can be on site when, when you're ready to go to slaughter. I, I went out to Nunavak Island. Look at it on a map. It's off, off the coast of Alaska, um, community of Makoriuk. And Makoriuk is, is known for uh, muskox and caribou, excuse me, and, and reindeer, reindeer. And, and they are really anxious to try to get a small um, a livestock production facility. Uh, they had one before. They've got the facility that they've built. Um, I saw it. They're ready to go. But their biggest challenge is, is you're not going to be able to get a USDA inspector out there for, for the inspection to to, to to look at the, the cleanliness of the facility, to be there for the slaughter. And so how do you, how do you bring along this nascent um, industry in a remote area like that? But the tribe stands ready and are anxious for what you and Senator Smith have really been working hard on. So I, I commend you for those efforts. But I think we just need to get these agencies used to it. You can show them. Again, we're not recreating the wheel here. There are good good examples. Sometimes capacity can be a bit of a challenge, but we help with that. We help with that. And the tribes, the tribes have demonstrated time and time again that they will surpass all of the expectations, all of the naysayers that said, you can't do this, you can't do it. But we've got to make that, that possible. I, I want to ask a question to you, uh, President Peterson, because you have raised the issue of, of the Forest Service and the potential for, for um, uh, management um, at the visitors center out there and, and what true management authority could look like for Clinkett Haida there at Mendenhall. And it, it really kind of hurt um, to listen to your story about uh, the response from Forest Service that the the Clinkett people had nothing to do with the glacier. It, 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 
it completely ignores, again, uh, the history of the people, the history of the region, and um, uh, uh, really a very offensive statement by um, probably somebody who was not very well informed. So if you can, um, in, the, in the two minutes that I've given you here, um, explain what you think management authority would look like for Clinkett Haida there at, at Mendenhall Glacier. Well, thank you, Senator Murkowski and your staff for all your work. Uh, to me, I think that that co-management, what that looks like for us is coming in and really taking over the tours, hiring, staffing, and making sure that everybody has that base education and understanding of not only the um, area, the, you know, it's an important scientific area because of um, the glacier receding and all those things. So you need to have a baseline on those sciences, but it's incredibly important also to have the true history of the area, the people of the area, and to understand that. So when those visitors come and are looking for that experience that we're able to fully give that experience. And so we're looking at um, not only those staffing needs, but also for all the maintenance and infrastructure needs there as well, so that we're there offering a first-class experience to our nation's resources. So if, uh, if, if this is a matter of Forest Service needing congressional authority, um, would a demonstration program be helpful or uh, have you given much thought to that? Yeah, absolutely, I think it would be incredibly helpful. And we've met with everybody from Secretary Vilsack, uh, Assistant Secretary Homer Wilkie, and, and they've all you know, said they really wanna work with us and have us take over the management of this visitor center. But it, they always come back with the lawyer saying they don't have the ability to do it. And we yeah. know that 638 contracting is that tool. Right. We have a really long history with IHS, with Department of Interior on 638 contracting. You, you absolutely have and have demonstrated that time and time again in a, in a very good and strong way. Thank you for being part of, of this committee this afternoon and for, for your words. We'll look forward to working with Clinkett Haida under your leadership. Going to cheese to you, Aunt Pawlaki. Thank you very much, uh, Senator Murkowski. Uh, Senator Lujan, followed by Senators Cortez, Masto, and Danes. Thank you to our chair and vice chair for this important uh, conversation. Um, as more and more legislation is being established, built, um, filed uh, to make a positive difference, especially in the area of food security um, and addressing problems that have been identified with pilot programs and things of that nature. So thank you all for being here. This week, I'm proud to introduce the Tribal Nutrition Flexibility Act and the Tribal Nutrition uh, Program Administration Act to improve FDIPR, which, as we all know, is the food distribution program. One of the things that my bill addresses is the need for greater tribal ownership over program implementation and flexibility to source traditional and local foods. My first question, Ms. Fain, yes or no, did the FDIPR 638 pilot result in higher take rates with traditional and tribally procured foods? From what we have uh, 
gleaned from the pilot tribes? Uh, the answer is yes. And I, one of the interesting examples that Mr. Spawn shared was about Oneida. And they had actually entered into an agreement with Menominees, and Menominees were purchasing Oneida-produced, I think it was Black Angus beef. And um, the what was shared by Menominee was that they they saw a significant increase in program participation and uh, the general excitement around the food that was actually coming through uh, through their offerings. And so um, some of the things that I think are important to note about that is, and again, one that was brought up was uh, those tribes that were able to do that know what is um, the right type of food for the region there. And I believe it was Mississippi Choctaws replaced some of the vegetables in their package with vegetables that are, that are uh, more appropriate for Mississippi and the southern region of the U.S. Whereas tribes that haven't been able to participate in that program uh, some we have heard from, especially in the Great Plains region, where they're like, we have a whole lot of white fish left, uh, left over. We want beef or we want bison. And so I think for those uh, pilot tribes in particular, there was, uh, there was really good participation and an increase in more appropriate foods by region, by season, things that uh, the nationwide administration don't necessarily uh, take advantage of because the framework doesn't permit it. Well, I hope we can strengthen that and learn from it. Now, President Peterson and Mr. Spahn, yes or no, would increased sourcing flexibility under FDIPR, the food distribution program, help more tribes include more traditional and tribally procured foods in their packages? Uh, President Peterson? Oh, yes, absolutely. Appreciate it. Mr. Spahn? Uh, yes, I agree. Uh, Ms. Fain, yes or no, would increased sourcing flexibility have allowed tribes to better meet the needs of program participants during supply chain shortages caused by the COVID-19 pandemic? Absolutely, it would. And likewise, added flexibility to source regional and local ingredients can help support more, as we've seen, with those Title, title I programs. Now, Mr. Casey, yes or no, does the Muscogee Creek Nation FDIPR program currently allow local, tribally raised and processed beef to be included in the food packages? Um, no, not yet, Senator. I hope we can fix that. And yes or no, would you agree that added flexibility to include these types of locally and regionally produced products is important to address food insecurity? Absolutely. I appreciate that very much. Ms. Fain, yes or no, do you agree that the federal government should remove the cost match for tribes administering for Dipper on tribal lands? Yes, definitely. Well, I appreciate that very much. And another bill that I, I've been proud to work on, I'll enter this into the record, um, Mr. Chairman, um, and to our vice chair, is around farmer-to-farmer -farmer education, which would allow the USDA to contract with tribes and state-based organizations to provide technical assistance, outreach, and improve access to these conservation programs. These are important, but we need to ensure that everyone can access them. And by working with USDA and with state partners, I believe that we'll only grow those opportunities as well. So uh, thank you for, your, for, for the time today, and I yield back.
Senator Cortez Maston. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, let me stay on uh, the same vein of conversation because I, I do appreciate my colleague, Senator Lujan, for what you're doing um, with respect to uh, the food insecurity that I see amongst my tribes in Nevada and that I'm hearing across the country. We do know that there's about one in four Native Americans experience food insecurity compared to one in nine Americans. I do believe, and I think everybody here uh, believes that the federal government, Congress has an obligation to uh, really uphold our, our trust responsibility to support tribal members and work with tribes and tribal communities um, to ensure that their basic needs are met. One anomaly that has come to my attention, and this is why Senator Murray and I have introduced legislation, is that a, a tribal member's inability to use SNAP and uh, FDIPR within the same month cannot occur, right? And so I would, if you can touch on this, maybe Mr. Spahn or any panel member, um, what, what impact does this have on our tribes when they, when they are limited to one or the other and they cannot utilize them in the same month, unlike uh, in other areas that we have allowed that to occur? Uh, yes, Senator, thank you for that question. I believe that the, uh, the statutory prohibition really limits tribes in being able to develop comprehensive approaches to address food insecurity in their communities. You know, uh, the self-determination demonstration project through FDIPR has been wonderful in providing tribes with additional flexibilities that they need to implement those programs appropriately. Uh, but there's still emergency situations, there's still um, unpredicted growing seasons, things that can occur where it can um, displace some foods that are intended for a food distribution program. And in those cases, it'd be nice for tribes to have that option of incorporating SNAP benefits. So whenever they need to, they have these different tools in their toolbox that they can pull upon to devise the best approach for addressing um, the issues in their local communities. Well, thank you. And this week, Senator Murray and I introduced legislation to reduce that tribal food insecurity by allowing tribal members who qualify for um, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, and the Food Distribution Program on Indian Reservations to use both programs in any given month. Uh, and uh, let me just ask, does anybody disagree that that is necessary or not necessary? Uh, would everybody agree that this is an important piece of legislation, uh, Ms. Fain? It definitely is, and I, I just want to highlight the current prohibition it doesn't acknowledge the realities of many tribal members who, due to school or jobs, may be within one month on the reservation and may be in a more urban area where they're forced to choose a program that they may not be able to have access to later in the month because of the uh, more kind of mobile nature that a lot of us live in today. So, Correct. Anyone else? Thank you, Senator. I would just like to touch on my experience in the retail space because the Muskogee Nation does have both the FDIPR program and the retail space, which accepts SNAP. Um, we're sort of uniquely positioned, and I have had conversations with um, tribal citizens who come in the shop uh, and have lamented the fact that if they were to stop FDIPR, there would be a month or more lapse in their benefits. So not only would they not be able to receive the benefit that month, but they would have to go a full additional month or even longer before they were able to um, utilize our SNAP benefits, and that really hurts. Um, and, and overall, it, it affects the stretch of a dollar because we've had a few sales where um, they could have gotten more food for the benefit cost if they would have been able to come to the plant and utilize SNAP that month as opposed to going to the FDIPR program. And like, like I said, it fluctuates a lot of months. The FDIPR program, they get more food to feed those families, but um, in certain times it would, be, it would be fantastic if they had the flexibility to be able to switch over without you know, having to stretch a month or even longer without any benefit. 
Thank you. And thank you, because let me just say, my understanding, there are currently estimated 276 tribes that receive benefits under FDIPR. In the fiscal year 2020, the program served 75,000 Native American adults and children each month. Uh, and according to the 2009 Urban Institute study, 87% of FDIPR participants are eligible for SNAP. Uh, and so this would make a difference for so many of our, our communities. So I thank you. Thank you for being here. Uh, and uh, I, I'll yield the remainder of my time. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much. Senator Daines. Chairman Schatz, thank you. And uh, thank you, uh, Ms. Fain, for being here to represent the Intertribal Agricultural Council, which is headquartered in Billings. That's where my mom and dad grew up. My dad literally married the girl next door in, uh, from Billings. It's always a pleasure to highlight the important work being done back home. Farming and ranching, as uh, we all know, is truly the foundation of our economy in Montana. It's our number one economic driver. It's our Montana way of life. And it also plays a very important role in our tribal communities. As the Senate crafts the Farm Bill, it's important to ensure that Montana's tribal ag producers and their voices are heard. Supporting crop insurance, promoting ag research, protecting drought and disaster relief programs, and maintaining important conservation programs are a few of Montana's biggest Farm Bill priorities. The Farm Bill also provides a great opportunity to advance important forest management and conservation reforms. We're already well into fire season. You know, it was the time of year when I'm making those phone calls back to folks on the front lines, to forest supervisors, spending time in a back home on the front lines, getting updates on these fires. They're already burning in a significant way in Montana as we speak. And so in, um, ensuring that we can advance these forest management priorities to produce more healthy forests, thinned forests, better wildlife habitat, better watersheds, more jobs, and reducing the risk of these catastrophic wildfires are so important. In fact, in 2018, Congress amended the Good Neighbor Authority Program to allow the Forest Service to partner with our tribes to advance some of these vital forest management projects. Some of the stark contrasts I have in my office, I've got pictures. If you take a look at private land, Oftentimes, state lands, you'll see vibrant green forests. You look at federal lands, you'll see gray, dying, decaying forests. Literally seeing the, the section line running up on the boundary. A dying forest that has not been managed, a vibrant forest that has. And our problem is on national forest ground. Uh, it's not on the state grounds. It's not on private ground. Um, there's still a lot of work to be done to ensure that tribes are fully empowered to manage forests and invest in conservation restoration projects, which is why I was glad to support Senator Rich's Treating Tribes and Counties as Good Neighbors Act so tribes can fully participate in this effective program. To my questions, as the wildfires are now burning in Montana, I'm keenly aware of the urgent need to get on-the-ground management work done. This common sense legislative fix would fully incorporate tribes as partners with the Forest Service by allowing them to retain timber receipts for restoration projects they undertake. It will keep a great incentive to keep the tribes engaged in forest management. These receipts could then be used by tribes to fund additional work to further protect communities and forests from catastrophic wildfires. Mr. Desitel, you have previously talked about a Good Neighbor Authority project in the Colville National Forest in Washington State that the Colville tribe had to abandon because of the cost. What would the impact be for tribes 
working to improve forest health, if we could successfully expand full good neighbor authority for tribes? Thank you for the question. So as I noted in my testimony, states have done a great job implementing this authority really since 2014 when it was expanded. But the limitation that tribes have is that we're already limited in the amount of funding we have available and what we receive from the Bureau of Indian Affairs to do forest management is limited to trust acres. So unless we have access to that program revenue to do the planning and restoration services allowed for with good neighbor authority, those would have to come from tribal dollars and tribal investments in every single situation. And most tribes just don't have adequate funding to manage their own lands as the, the most recent IFMAT report showed in addition to adding those costs to adjacent federal lands, which we know get three to four times per acre what the tribes do. So if we had a mechanism that allowed us to retain revenue to continue that work, to build staffing and capacity to be able to help our adjacent federal land managers, that would be huge. And I think it would completely solve the problem and you would see much more utilization of that program. There couldn't be a better answer. You just gave it. I mean, completely solve, huge. And this is clearly something we can address legislatively and that's a really important statement you made here for the record uh, in this hearing so why we need to get this done thank you um, i often hear from producers in indian country about the barriers that make it difficult to participate in some of these valuable farm programs ensuring fair access to these programs are going to help grow tribal economies help improve food access and support infrastructure investment Ms. Fain, what steps can Congress take to increase tribal access and participation in valuable farm bill programs? Thank you, Senator. Uh, Congress, the way they can do this is to recognize tribes uh, within farm bill provisions and actually tailor uh, existing programs to uh, recognize the unique places that tribes have within USDA. Right now, especially, a lot of the programming is administered in a way that uh, leaves tribes out of uh, the process uh, where it might be, for instance, around disaster and where drought occurs. Um, I know that a lot of our producers, uh, some arbitrary county lines make a difference between whether they're eligible for disaster funding or not. And it's not reflective of the fact that they are, uh, pr they are operating on tribal lands and a reservation as a whole instead of within a county that, um, depending on whether, where the weather monitor is, may not account for where they are within the reservation. And so... Uh, being careful and mindful of is, how these programs are reaching tribal producers or alternatively aren't because they haven't been designed for input from tribes and individual producers is, is an important step um, to making sure producers do have that same type of access uh, that their neighbors do who aren't necessarily operating on tribal lands. Ms. Fain, thank you. Mr. Chairman, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Senator Daines. Mr. Price, um, you know better than most, Hawaii has successfully incorporated traditional ecological knowledge in its agricultural practices, including biocultural restoration, agroforestry, and food systems. 
Can you share a specific example that shows how traditional conservation practices are best practices? Uh, mahalo, Senator Schatz. I'm off mute. Mahalo uh, for that question. Um, no, there, there are many examples that highlight the value of traditional conservation practices in Hawaii. And I'd like to answer that first by pointing out that, that what we often think of as conservation is to protect land from overdevelopment and just leave it as open space, uh, which oftentimes incentivizes neglect or poor stewardship. And in Hawaii, neglected land actually becomes a threat to surrounding communities as invasive species take root and massive invasive trees such as Albizia or Opiuma can become uprooted projectiles in massive flood events, for example. And we've, we've seen this happen over and over again. Uh, overgrown land also becomes cover for CD activity that feeds the underbelly of society. Um, so, you know, we, we need to incentivize proper stewardship and traditional conservation practices are grounded in human engagement and maintenance of land and water resources that is rooted in enhancing ecosystems and increasing productivity of the natural environment. Um, what I hope is that by codifying TEK, we can open the door for greater investment to capture the impacts of TEK work through the use of technology such as environmental sensors, LIDAR and GPS, it's just a few examples, to track environmental data such as soil health nutrients and moisture to tell the story of TEK and practice through data um, some sites that are doing this groundbreaking work, to answer your question, are, are Hanohanohe'ia on Oahu, Aina Momona and Sustainable Molokai on Molokai, on the island of Molokai, um, Kumano Ikeala and uh, Waipa Foundation on Kauai. These are just a few, and these are projects that are restoring spaces, utilizing traditional conservation practices. Um, I'll be adding a report to the record uh, that was produced by our working group that outlines the input gathered. Um, and uh, through our, our, our engagement process that lists uh, 70 uh, native Hawaiian producers and practitioners, which all serve ex as examples of the TEK work, work happening across Hawaii. And if we can use the farm bill to further empower and create investment in that work, uh, this will be transformative for Hawaii and potentially the world. Mahalo. Thank you, uh, Mr. Price. and. Uh, I just want to say I have that Aloha shirt, so it's a good thing I didn't wear it today. Um, uh, Mr. Spawn, USDA previously testified that there are structural barriers to 638 expansion with the department. How, how can we set up USDA for a successful expansion of this program? Uh, thank you, Chairman Schatz. You know, federal agencies identifying structural barriers to self-determination and self-governance uh, certainly not new. If you look back 70s, 80s, 90s, as you know, 2010 timeframe, you look at DOI, IHS, Department of Transportation, all presenting barriers that they said it couldn't happen. Uh, however, what we've seen is that once everybody comes together, we can make it happen and, and fully believe the same would be true at USDA. I do think that having a feasibility study to take a very systematic look at all programs and agencies across USDA could really help to ease some of that uncertainty. What we tend to find is there's a lot of agencies that kind of come up with hypothetical can't-dos, and whenever you actually get into the weeds of like, oh, hang on, that's not that difficult to overcome. Um, so I think that that systematic look at all the programs would be beneficial. One thing that, you know, there was a study for HHS feasibility um, 20 years ago that found it was feasible, and it's never been implemented. So I think that if Congress were to consider giving that flexibility to um, let USDA initiate some uh, limited 
demonstration projects when they find a program feasible, that that could be helpful to make sure that this is action-oriented and not just a report that goes on you know, the bookshelves for 20 years. Uh, we also think that the use of demonstration projects has been critical across all agencies that have self-governance authority now. It allows a small number of tribes to participate, work with the agency to identify what the challenges are, how do we overcome these the best way. And you know, self-governance, self-determination, one of the beauties of it is that it's unique for every single tribe that implements it. So you have a nice um, kind of sampling of different tribes participate in it. It allows the tribes to work with the agency to overcome the challenges, and it also allows the agency not to get overwhelmed. Uh, before they're comfortable with it. So I, I think those would be two recommendations I would have. Thank you. Just some final thoughts on that. You know, we, we, uh, we, we did a lot in IIJA and IRA to include uh, Native communities in programs that already existed. And I think what we're finding, first of all, that's great news. That's a huge policy uh, victory. But what we're finding is, you know, it's not quite enough to say and... Indian tribes and Alaska Natives and Hawaiians because those people who are administering whatever program they're administering don't know really what that means and they don't understand the trust relationship, they don't understand the government-to-government -government relationship, and so they end up interacting with tribes and Native people as though they are just some county sub-grantee or some NGO or some trade association. And so I think as, first of all, we have a long way to go to enact a farm bill and all of these provisions in it, but we really have to track implementation because it's not someone's fault if they work at USDA all their lives and they haven't actually had to interact with tribes because it hasn't been, a, it hasn't been public policy yet. So I just have a real keen eye towards implementation and seeing Department of Energy, some of these uh, civil servants, longtime civil servants are just not familiar with the relationship and um, I don't want to have a couple of years of failure and then we all point our fingers in the air and why aren't you doing this? I think we have to have an eye towards how hard it's going to be to get agencies that are not accustomed to interacting with sovereigns uh, to do so. So um, if they're, uh, um, oh, I thought uh, Senator Murkowski was to say something, that was just a cough. Um, uh, if there are no more questions for our witnesses, members may also submit follow-up written questions for the record. The hearing record will be open for one month. I want to thank all of the witnesses, both in person and uh, uh, online, uh, for their time and their testimony today. This hearing is adjourned.